Well, it is good to be back. Uh, I'm not going to lie, I rested very well. Um, I was telling people when I came back, I think uh, vacation, uh, usually it takes a, about three or four days to unplug, and then, you know, when you're a couple days off from going back, you start to think about it again and start planning in your head. And for whatever reason, the Lord gave me the ability to just walk away completely for 10 straight days. And, uh, you know, it was just great for our family. And uh, it was relaxing, it was refreshing, it was good. And really want to thank uh, all of you uh, for being so gracious and supportive and a lot of the leaders here that uh, continued uh, to be faithful and really uh, shepherd and care for uh, you all and uh, really you all care for one another so well. So um, praise God um, for all of that. But I got to be honest with you, as great and relaxing and refreshing as vacation is, um, I want you to know I didn't enter it with any skewed expectations. And I know often we do that. We get this idea that if we just get away from life, then we'll be refreshed. Right? Not just physically, but refreshed in the deepest part of who we are, reinvigorated in the soul. That is, if we were to get away from life, then we will be enlivened. And I've been away enough times, my dad thinks I go away every week uh, on vacation. Actually, now, isn't that funny? He's on vacation right now. Doesn't the table flip? Uh, I didn't go, I know that many of us, we go with this anticipation that we're going to be so renewed in spirit by getting away from life. But friends, vacations don't vivify. Vacations do not nurture the soul. Only Jesus does. We don't need to get away from life to be refreshed in soul, right? Because Jesus is present and available in the midst of life. And the one who refreshes and reinvigorates is always available. And actually, I think, as I look at the passage that we're in tonight, I think I've actually been more refreshed in soul in the last few days in sermon prep over Acts chapter 9 than I was refreshed in soul being away for 10 days. Because that's what the scriptures do, right? That's what the scriptures do. That's what dramatic stories of how Jesus shows up into people's lives when they least expect it and when we think they least deserve it, that's refreshing. And so my heart as we attempt to enter into this passage tonight is for every single one of us, no matter what spiritual state we find ourselves in, however, I would probably guess that there are many of us here that are currently in the midst of a relationship with God that's grown numb, that's maybe sapped of strength, that maybe seems lifeless, that seems kind of old news, old school, and it's kind of just going through the motions. I'm excited that we're here today in Acts chapter 9. Because I think it's stories and scriptures like these that really bring us all back to the simplicity and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has radically transformed the most undeserving of people. And in many ways, we stare into a mirror tonight, seeing not just the life of Saul, who becomes Paul later, 
And by the way, I'm probably going to mess that up all night long, Saul and Paul, Saul and Paul. So just get over it at this point because I just know what's going to happen, right? Just give a little grace here. It's really a picture of us. And it's my heart that you would be refreshed in soul, reminded of your salvation, and really refueled by God's purposes that are behind it. Acts 9, verse 1 through 19. Let's go there together. Maybe you've heard it a thousand times. Maybe this is the first time. Let's read it together. Verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision that a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. This is the story of Saul. First verse starts out, takes us right there, right? But Saul. But this is not the first time that we have seen him or read of him in the book of Acts, is it? Right? You go back to Acts 7.58 at the end of the story uh, and the account of Stephen's 
martyrdom. 758 says, they cast him out of the city and stoned him, referring to Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their garments at, a feet, at the feet of a young man named Saul. Verse, eight, uh, verse 1 of chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. So we see here that Saul was one that was approving of and standing there as Stephen's garments are laid at his feet. That the, he's approving of this execution of this, of this uh, servant, Stephen, and this witness who eventually dies for his witness, Stephen. Verse 3 of chapter 8. Right? Beyond Stephen, what is Saul doing? text says that Saul was ravaging the church, intensifying here. He's not just having garments laid at his feet. He's not just right, approving of the execution, but his opposition, his vehement opposition to Christ and his followers begins to intensify. The Bible says that he was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was vehemently opposed, actively engaged in trying to put a stop to all those who proclaimed the name of Jesus. He was, a, he was vehemently opposed to Christ and his followers. Verse 1, still breathing threats. Murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. He gets authority, he gets letters, so that if he finds anyone, not just in Jerusalem, he's not just content to rid Jerusalem of Christianity, but he is now pursuing other cities to rid people, or to rid uh, those cities of Christianity. He's not just, has an, he doesn't just have an opinion, I don't believe in that. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't buy it. I'm, I'm not going to believe that. There's an active pursuit. There's an opposition. There's an intense uh, uh, opposition against Christianity and those who follow. And he is willing to do anything and go anywhere to rid the world of this new movement. Right? The, those belonging to the way became the, the name uh, of those uh, who were following Jesus. So here Saul is trying to find more men and women and drag them bound to Jerusalem as criminals. But what we see take place next is so unexpected. Look at what it says. That now as he went on his way, as he was on his way, as he was engaged in active opposition to Jesus and his people, in that moment, as he's on his way almost to the city of Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Out of nowhere, when he least expected it, light. We don't know if it's the day or the night, we're not sure, but you get the idea that this, this great illuminating uh, presence shone around him, and we know the source of it. It didn't come uh, from, from the right or the left, it came from heaven. This is a heavenly divine revelation and this is a the powerful presence of jesus look at what the text goes on to say right so this flash of light the presence the glorious presence of jesus that that, that now uh, jesus begins to speak into verse four right falling to the ground this powerful presence of jesus 
causes Paul to fall to the ground. And now he's beginning to hear a voice. He's not just in the midst of a powerful presence, but he's also hearing an audible voice that says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So in the midst, as, as Paul is, there it is again, as Saul is on the way to Damascus, Jesus shows up in a powerful and personal way. It's almost like on his way, Jesus gets in the way, right? And I began to think, right, like you think about our stories and our encounters with Jesus and how we came to faith. Was it not when we least expected it? Was it not in the moment when we were living in active opposition to his will and his ways that light shone from heaven? And Jesus speaks powerfully and personally. I love that. It's so personal. Saul doesn't know who Jesus is, does he? I mean, he he thinks he does. Saul thinks he knows who Jesus is. But he doesn't. But Jesus knows Saul. I begin to think about that. With so many people who don't know Jesus, who've not had that, that encounter with the living, present Jesus. But the reality is this, is that while they don't know Jesus, Jesus knows them. Jesus is all-knowing. There's not anyone, including us, that Jesus is not completely aware of in all of the details of our lives. And I love that he calls on Saul by name. He calls him by name. Just like he does you and me. When Jesus shows up, he does so powerfully, light flashing from heaven in such a way that causes Paul to fall to the ground. But he comes with great... uh, with, with personally speaking to him by name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? He doesn't know, who are you, Lord? And again, with personal revelation, Jesus says who he is. There is absolutely no ambiguity about the revelation of Jesus, exactly who this person is, is there? Jesus knows exactly who Saul is, and he reveals himself this light in resurrection glory. Jesus says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's the paradox, I think, that we see when we look at the nature of revelation, the way in which God, in Jesus Christ, shows up into our lives. It's a both-and deal. It's both transcendent and imminent. What I mean by that is this, that it came from heaven. It's beyond us. Its source is not here. It's other earthly. It's not from here. It's beyond us. And he reveals himself as one who is beyond us, transcendent. But at the same time, it's imminent. Jesus is physically present there with, with Saul. It's beyond Saul, but it's next to and with Saul. It's both objective and subjective, right? Objective in the idea that Jesus is giving him objective truth. 
I am Jesus. I am the Lord whom you're persecuting. But at the same time, this objective truth is being made known to Saul. It's subjectively experienced. It's Paul's life. There it is again. It's Saul's life, right? It's subjectively engaged. He's able to interact with Jesus. Not only that, it's divine. This is God. This is the Lord. And it's human. This is Jesus. That's the paradox of the way God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Both divine and human. Jesus is the God-man. right? And what we see here is a powerful revelation of God in Jesus Christ to this undeserving man. A gracious one, but a personal revelation. Jesus calls him out by name. Jesus reveals his very identity. Jesus, Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. I'm Jesus. I'm the one that you're persecuting. That's how Jesus and, and, and God reveals himself in Jesus Christ in a very uh, both-and way that shows it's, the, it, it's God, right? The glory of God revealing himself to us as people. And I can't help but look at this situation, and I hope you are as well, recognizing this is descriptive of Paul's life. But oh, are there things that are prescriptive to ours as well? And descriptive of really the nature of what God has done in Jesus Christ in our lives. When we were on our way in life, God showed up in Jesus Christ and he stood in the way, did he not? In a powerful and personal way, God showed up in Jesus, revealing himself, enabling us to see who he really is. Again, paradox, right? Saul is blinded. He can't see. But for the first time in his life, although physically incapable of sight, finally, spiritually, in his soul, Beholding the beauty of Jesus. When God shows up in Jesus Christ, he is powerful enough to change anyone, even you. And I think that's what we see here. We see sovereign grace at work, don't we? Of all people, remember who this man is. Saul, the active, vehement opponent of Jesus and his church. And we begin to think about who we are. And who we were in relationship with God before he showed up into our lives. And we begin to see that God's revelation in Jesus Christ that is both personal and powerful is one of grace. It's undeserved. It's unexpected. And it is very much undeserved. This is what God has done in Christ. In this man's life. And I think also it's a reminder, a refreshing reminder for us all about what God has done in our lives. You know, it was a very uh, unforgettable privilege to sit down uh, with many of you here during the membership process and hear your stories. Like, actually sit down for once, you know, around a coffee table or at a dinner table or on a couch and ask the question, tell me how you met God in Jesus Christ. And to hear how in differing fashion, yet 
in a similar nature, right? The grace of God in Christ showed up in each and every one of your lives and changed you, right? Changed you. That, that revelation and that grace is the, the all-sufficient thing that changed the fabric and the trajectory of your life. What an amazing thing it was for me to sit there and just listen and to give glory to God for what He has done. But I think as we look at this, you know, just taking another step back, there were some stories that began like this. Well, my story's not that dramatic. It's not all that exciting. And I grew up in the church. My parents loved me and they taught me the scriptures. And when I was seven years old, I gave my life to Jesus. And, you know, I've had a struggle here and there along the way and continue to struggle. But all, all in all, my life has really been one where the Lord has drawn me from a young age. And there were other ones that had just, whoa, wow, I can't believe that. Wow, man, what an amazing. You get the idea. And we have this idea, especially as we look at Acts chapter 9, that, that there are more dramatic stories than others. Right? As if that's one that should be told, that's exciting, but other ones, not so much. Now, we all recognize that some stories have more dramatic details. But every single story about how God has come in the person of Jesus Christ, revealed Himself, poured out His grace... None of them are more dramatic or radical in nature than any other one. Can we, can we just can we say that for a moment? Let's not forget, whether you were seven years old or whether you were pulled out of a ditch at 24 because of some massive addiction and all these crimes that you've committed, no matter if you're 24 in a ditch or seven years old and your father's, uh, on your father's couch praying to receive Christ, before you knew Christ, before you saw Him for who He was, you were dead in sin. It doesn't matter what age you were and how detailed. You were dead in sin. You were an object of wrath. And you were at enmity with God. And I think what happens is a, is a dramatic story like this that has dramatic detail. And when we hear your stories that also have dramatic details, we get to say this, man, that story tells me the real story about my life. May I not be confused about the details of my story in thinking that my indifference and apathy toward God, my self-centered idolatry was no less at enmity of God, with God than the guy who's struggling with some addiction. Let us not be confused. This is a story, a parable, that illustrates for us the way in which God saves people. He reveals Himself in Christ, powerfully and personally, and then they respond in faith, which we're about to see. That's what God does. That's what He did in my life. And I know hearing your stories, that's exactly what He did in yours. When God shows up in Jesus Christ, He's powerful enough to change anyone. Even Saul. Even me. Even you. Even the person that you got in the back of your mind that you say, huh, he'll never come to faith in Jesus. You know who that person is, right? 
this story gives us a reality check about the power of the sovereign grace of God in Jesus Christ. And I hope fuels within us a confidence that even the most undeserved and unlikely of people are savable by Jesus. So he tells Saul to go to the city. He's going to be told what to do. Saul can't see. Right? The, the other people that were there, they heard something, not sure what was going on. They lead him into the city. For three days, a guy doesn't uh, eat. He doesn't drink. He just waits. We see that God showed up in Saul's life. We see that God is about to show up again in somebody else's life. Verse 10, right? There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! Once again, the Lord knows his own. He calls him by name. And I love his response. Should be the response of any of us who say that we trust in Jesus, that when Jesus calls us by name, that our response, also a reminder of Isaiah chapter 6, right? Here I am, Lord, or here am I, Lord. An availability to what God would have for you is the way in which we are to respond uh, to his call. No matter when he calls, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day, when the Lord calls our name, our response should always be an availability, a postured heart that is available and ready to do anything the Lord, if He is Lord, would ask us to do. I love that. Calls Him by name. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, get up. Sounds like me when I'm talking to the kids when it's time to go to school. Get up. <laughs> go to the street called Straight. At the house of Jesus, Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. What? Okay, I, I heard my name, Lord. Let, 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 me, let me hear that again. Yes, go to the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. He's seen in a vision a, a man named Ananias. That's you, pal. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Love it, right? Ananias, here's his name. He's in. I'm in. Here I am, Lord. Sign me up. Count me in. I'll do whatever you would have me to do, Lord. Day or night, it doesn't matter. So he's heard from God, and he's made himself available to the call. But when he hears the call, he's also got a buzz in his other ear about some other things that he's heard about this guy named Saul. Right? He's heard from the Lord. Hey, Ananias, this is what I want you to do. Saul is at the house of Judas. He's waiting for you. He knows a guy by the name of your name is going to go and pray for him to receive sight. Yeah, but this guy, I've heard about this guy, Lord. Let me tell, let me tell you, Lord, about this guy named Saul. I've heard about how much evil he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Basically, Ananias hears a prison sentence. Yeah, I'm going to go to 
lay hands on that guy. Lord, he's here to put me in prison. Right? So I, I love the interaction here because, again, I think it's a, a picture of how, oft, how we so often uh, relate to God who's calling us to be uh, active in the lives of people who do not know him. It is both an availability and a hesitancy, right? We've heard from you, Lord, yeah, you know, but at the same time, we've heard from them. There's this tension. He's standing between his faith and availability in the Lord and to the Lord, and at the same time, his fear in recognition and knowledge of who this guy is. He thinks he knows who Saul is and how he would respond to him showing up at that house to pray for him. In some ways, Ananias is subtly saying, not him, Lord. Right? Why him? Of all people, this guy? Saul of Tarsus? Are you sure? I don't know if the timing is right. Right? Maybe I should text him first. Struck a chord, right? Let's pray for him for a season. I don't know. I don't know, God. Why him? I think we respond in that fashion as well as we think about evangelism in this place. We think about what we're called to. There's both that, yeah, we're excited about this. We're making ourselves available to the purposes of God in Liverpool, Baldwinsville, Clay, Cicero, North Syracuse, whatever the suburbs are that we're going after. Hey, whoever God wants to save, let's go after him, right? We're making ourselves available to that. But at the same time, when we begin to talk personally about individuals in your life, you begin to say, you look at the receptivity meter, and you start to go, oh, I don't think so, not him. God can't save him, not her. She's too hostile. She gets mad every time I bring it up. She's real uncomfortable with that. She's got a really difficult past. All things that we need to be aware of and sensitive to. But correct me if I'm wrong. Do we not... Hearing the call of God to engage lost people, no matter how lost they are, do we not live in the tension of hearing God's call, making ourselves available to it, here I am, Lord, to actually hearing what He wants us to do and saying, oh, I don't think so, not Him. A hesitancy that's driven by fear is standing in the way of a, a, an availability that's driven by faith. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just explaining my life. But I doubt it not. I doubt it. I doubt it. You get my point. But Ananias doesn't know what just went down, right? Ananias doesn't know about the encounter that Saul has had with the resurrected Jesus. And Ananias doesn't know the answer to the question, why him? And maybe we don't know why God is calling us to go and engage people that we would assume would be out of reach, unsavable, untouchable by the grace of God. When God shows up in Jesus, He does so on purpose. 
Look at what he says. The Lord said to him, go, for he's my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. When God shows up, he does so on purpose. It's powerful, amen? It's, purposeful, or it, it's, it's personal, but it's also very purposeful. God has a reason for saving people. Other than our myopic or at least minimalistic understanding. He saved me from sin so that I don't have to go to hell. There is redemptive purpose for the here and now, right? We need to have an expanded understanding of why God showed up in the first place in the midst of our undeserved sinfulness, right? Why did God show up? Why did he save you? Why is he doing this in Paul's life or in Saul's life? Why is he having Ananias be a part of this process? Why is God doing what he's doing? Well, he has a very specific purpose in mind, right? The recipients of grace are instruments. That's the nature of it. Those who receive are, are now instruments of grace. What God does in his grace uh, uh, in us, God in his grace is going to do through us. That's just how God does it. That's his sovereign plan. He's chosen to use his people to reach people. Whatever God's going to do in the world, he's primarily going to do through all of Christ's people. Whatever God's going to do in Liverpool, Baldensville, Clay, he's going to do through all of his people who live in that area. Right? We are recipients of grace, and because we're recipients, we are now by nature, according to divine purpose, instruments of divine grace. We're representatives of that grace. There's great reason for it. God has chosen Saul to be an instrument that carries his name. God, of all people, right? Like I think about what Paul later says as he writes to Timothy, and he actually was Paul at that point. He's talking about the radical nature of his conversion. He's wrestling with this like we do when we look in the mirror and we ask the question, why did God save me? I don't understand. Why did God show up in my life? I, I can't comprehend it. It's so undeserved. And we look in the mirror and we come to grips with a verse like this where Paul says this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You know, just like Paul, we would look in the mirror, we would pen those words. I'm the worst sinner there is. And if we don't write those words, you're the worst sinner there is. <laughs> right? Right? I mean, but why does God do this? Why does Christ save sinners, even the worst of them? He goes on to say, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example for those who will believe on him for eternal life. There's purpose. It's so much bigger than we get saved from our sins and get to spend eternity in Siesta Key, Florida. No, that's spend eternity in heaven. That's not the fullness of salvation, amen? But he has saved us for a specific purpose on this earth, right here, right now, as his ambassadors and representatives and instruments to be used. That's what Ananias 
is seeing here. He's being used. And he's also seeing that God has redemptive purpose behind the radical, dramatic conversion of this persecutor and blasphemer Saul. God saves us for a purpose, a mission. And I love this because what we're seeing here is, if you go back to the opening chapter of the book of Acts, that you see what what the church's witness was going to progressively do, right? It was going to move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's our sermon series title, To the Ends of the Earth. It's moved from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And we see that nine chapters in, because of this, through this conversion of Saul, that Jesus is indeed carrying out his plan to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, bring the gospel to the world, bring the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Syracuse, New York someday. And it all was because of his divine Sovereign purposes in the life of Saul that Saul embraced and faithfully pursued. God saves us for a purpose. It's not haphazard. It's not thrown together. It's not wait and see. Specific divine purposes are being carried out. And that's the same for us, amen? God has saved us on purpose. He's going to use us in the lives of people that we would least expect. And I love how this ends. More could be said here, believe you me. I'm trying to land the plane here. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. What a phenomenal phrase. Brother Saul. Remember who he was, people. And don't just think about the transformation in Saul's heart. Think about the transformation in the heart of Ananias to approach Saul and call him not enemy, but family. And again, you ask the question, what does God do when he saves us? What has God done in Mike Macy's life? What has God done in Jesus Christ in all of your lives as you have embraced him? He has taken you from being enemy to family. That's the gospel. The undeserved, sovereign, grace, personal, powerful, whatever you want. That's what the effect is. You went from enemy to family. Brother Saul, now in the family of God. Really to highlight his new identity, right? which is what you see taking place as he enters baptism. He's putting on display a new identity that the sovereign grace of God has given him in Jesus Christ. His sin, although grotesque, although his opposition to Christ in the church, vehement, because of the death of Jesus and his union with that death in baptism, By faith. His sins are gone. The same goes for us. No matter how grotesque, no matter how vehement, no matter how radical the opposition your life was in reference to God, 
through faith and union with Jesus in baptism, no matter what as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your sin from you. You're forgiven. This is our story. How God shows up, transforms our identity, and welcomes us into his family. We are his children. And looking around, let's not forget this. We're not just tethered to a purpose, but a community that is on purpose. Living out what God wants for a particular place in a particular time. I love that. Brother Saul. The gospel has not just transformed Saul's relationship with Jesus. It's transformed his relationship with Jesus' people. And so begin to look around now and begin to see how the gospel has reconciled you not just to God, but to one another. The effect of the sovereign grace of God is so much more than we uh, give it credit for, at least at a quick glance. God is up to so much more than we might anticipate. And as we see here, that He's powerful enough to change anyone and purposeful enough to use anyone, even you. I kind of see this passage as two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, it's revelation, right? Someone that's never seen Jesus. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you've never seen Jesus in all of His glory, in His matchless grace. You've never saw Him as Lord, and you've never embraced Him But God has revealed Himself to you tonight. See Him for who He is. You may have been asking a, a similar question as Saul. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? And maybe Saul has said, or maybe Jesus has said, I am Jesus. And you've heard it for the first time. At the same time, I think it's a reminder not just revelation. The revelation is a reminder. Probably a better way to say it. And I hope it's refreshing for each and every one of you. Right? When we're numb, when we've grown cold, there's only one place that we need to go. And it's not Siesta Key in Disney World. It's Jesus. Some of you need to do some time with Jesus. And sit at the feet of the cross and remember who you once were and how He's taken you to be from enemy to, to His family. We cannot hang out there enough. And if we've grown cold, grown cold to the gospel, we need to spend more time there. We don't need to go somewhere else. But maybe you're like Ananias. You're afraid and you're available all at the same time. And you're saying, here I am, Lord, but you're not so convinced that God's going to use you in the lives of anyone, especially those one or two people in your, in your mind that you think are untouchable. So I don't think the call is only to see Jesus for who He is, but I think it's for all of us, as we're reminded of the grace of God, to make ourselves available to the sovereign purposes of God in the world through the church. So serve Jesus. Don't just see Jesus. Respond by serving Jesus for all that He wants. 
and you know the person right now that I'm talking about, that you need to trust their salvation. You need to trust Jesus for their salvation. And go talk to them. When God shows up in Jesus Christ, He's powerful enough to change anyone. He's purposeful enough to use anyone. Even Saul. Even me. Even you. Amen? Let's pray. Honestly, Lord, not sure what to say other than we praise you. We praise you for all that you are and all that you have done in Jesus Christ to save us from our sin, to reconcile us back into relationship with you, to use us as your people, to bring and carry your name to every man, woman, and child that we come into contact with in this world, in our lives. Use us, Lord. Use us. Save us. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.